Well, are there any fans of Calvin and Hobbes out there? Okay, fair amount. I thought there would be. Calvin and Hobbes is an absolutely brilliant comic strip from my childhood. Elisa and I just recently introduced our kids to it. They're loving it. It's about a six-year-old boy named Calvin who's intelligent and imaginative and an absolute terror to any authority figure he comes across. And Calvin's best friend is a stuffed tiger named Hobbes. And the gimmick of the strip is that to everybody else, Hobbes appears as a normal, lifeless, stuffy. But in Calvin's reality, Hobbes is a living, breathing companion who shares in all of his adventures. Now, one adventure that recurringly comes up periodically over the course of the strip is G-R-O-S-S. Gross. The top secret, get rid of slimy girls club. (laughs) The club has precisely two members. Calvin is dictator for life. Hobbes is president and first tiger. The purpose of the club, the purpose of the club is to be exclusive. It exists solely for the purpose of excluding girls. And in particular, the club's objective is to annoy Calvin's neighbor and nemesis, Susie Durkins. Noteworthy escapades of gross include a plot to lure Susie into a water balloon ambush, a plot to kidnap her doll for ransom, and a plot to lock her in a closet, all of which end in failure. But in spite of every setback, one thing remains constant over the course of the strip. It's the defining virtue of the Get Rid of Slimy Girls Club, at least in Calvin's mind. And that is that he and Hobbes are in. And Susie and any other females similarly infested with cooties, are out. And if you're out, then good riddance. Now, exclusivism may be funny when it's a six-year-old in a comic strip. But i got to tell you, it is an ugly, ugly thing when you find it in the Church of Jesus Christ. When Christians get exclusive when they decide that they're going to care about what happens to them and to the people in their circle, and they're not going to be concerned about those outside their circle, that's a massive problem. Why? Because it doesn't reflect the heart of God. Because the heart of God, which is lavishly generous towards all kinds of sinners isn't reflected when his people are clicky. Here's how we know the generous heart of our God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And here's a question for us. Do Do you have a heart like that? Do I? Does our church, does redeeming grace reflect God's generous love for all kinds of sinners? 
How can we know? Well, the text of Scripture we're studying this morning is going to give us a helpful test. Here's the test. Who do we pray for? Who do we pray for? So this time, let's turn to the text. I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And if you're using a blue Bible from the seats, you'll find that on page 991. See, friends, God's word has a very simple truth to teach us today. Would you have a heart like God's? Then pray generous prayers for all sorts of people because God's salvation is for all sorts of people. First, we see that Paul gives a command. Pray for all people. Please read with me verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior." So this is the Apostle Paul. He's telling his young protege, Timothy, that he wants the Ephesian church to be praying for all people. Timothy's stationed in Ephesus right now. And Paul specifically mentions that they should pray for the governing authorities. Now here's a little background information. It's really important to understand the context in which Timothy was ministering. Paul had sent him to Ephesus to straighten out a huge mess Timothy's young, but he's seasoned and trustworthy as a gospel laborer by this time. And that's a really good thing because he's got a real challenge on his hands. False teachers have risen up within the Ephesian church. Probably ungodly elders. So elders that had been raised up and have now gone wrong. Paul actually knew this was going to happen. When he said his final goodbyes to the Ephesian elders, he told them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And sure enough, within a few years' time, that indeed had happened. Some of those very men who were on the beach with him saying goodbye, some of those very men had departed from the gospel, they'd started living wrong, and they'd started teaching wrong wrong things, and that was causing all kinds of havoc in the church. And that's why Paul has sent Timothy to Ephesus. He's supposed to sort all that out. He's supposed to battle against the false teachers and help the believers come out from under their influence. Now, what do these bad guys, these fierce wolves, what do they want? Well, if you read all of First and Second Timothy, you can see that they want power, And they want money, and they want pleasure. And they're using their position as teachers within the church to get those things. Now, what is it that they're teaching? Weird stuff. Strange doctrines with with roots in Jewish mysticism. They still have Jesus in the mix somewhere, 
But what they're really excited about is finding obscure Jewish writings and extra-biblical traditions about the genealogies in the Old Testament, and they build a whole theology around these myths. And they love to promote themselves as if they're teachers of the law, but they're twisting the law to suit their own purposes. Now, here's the deal. They're running an exclusive club. These false teachers claim that they have the super special Jewish knowledge with all the secret decoder rings that's going to lead their followers to salvation. That means salvation is for them and their followers and everybody else, especially Gentiles, non-Jews, especially Gentiles are excluded. So if you're in their in-group... If you're in the club, then you don't need to be concerned about those those icky folks outside. Those slimy folks outside. You don't need to give them a second thought. You certainly don't need to pray for them. Now, as it turns out, that's all complete rubbish. Because as Paul's going to explain in a minute, God's salvation in Jesus is for everyone. But their wretched theology has led them to a wretched conclusion. This wretched conclusion is, there are people that it's not worth my time to pray for. And to counter that thinking, Paul issues the command, no, 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 pray for all people without distinction. It doesn't matter who or what somebody is, you pray for them that they may be saved. In fact... Make supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings for them that they may be saved. I just think those are, he's piling up terms. He's saying, you pray a bunch for everybody. And there's one specific example. One specific example, you pray for kings and all those who are in high positions. That they may be saved. So friends, let's just start with, let's take his specific example He's making a bigger point that salvation's for all kinds of people, but he wants them to, he, he especially highlights this one, governing authorities. Governing authorities are the proper object of our prayers to God. So let's just get specific in our situation. Verse 3. It is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior that we pray for President Joe Biden, and Vice President Kamala Harris, for the nine justices of the Supreme Court, for Senators Bernie Sanders and Peter Welch, Chuck Schumer and Kristen Gillibrand, for Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy and Congresswoman Becca Ballant, for Governors Phil Scott and Kathy Hochul, for St. Albans Mayor Tim Smith, Burlington Mayor Miro Weinberger, for the members of our various select boards, it pleases God when we pray for these men and women that they would know his salvation through Jesus Christ. Let's just sit under that truth for a moment, brothers and sisters. God desires to save all sorts of people, including our governing authorities. Let's be honest. Are there people on that list that you'd rather, you feel like you'd rather not pray for? Are there people 
on that list that you're tempted to think it's pointless to pray for. And yet, Paul says this is good and pleasing to God when his children make supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings for their leaders. Good and pleasing and in keeping with the heart of God. Consider, by the way, Paul's own context. Who is the emperor of Rome at this time? Nero. Nero. In a few short years, Christians are going to suffer intensely under his rule. Paul himself is going to lose his life. And it sure would be easy to say, no way, not praying for him. But Paul's just following his master. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, who's, who's often going to be the ones who are, who, if, if true kind of global persecution comes, it's going to come from the governing authorities. And yet he says, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Because sons look like their father. So even when governing authorities are throwing you to lions, even when the Sanhedrin is stoning you, even when Roman soldiers are nailing you to the cross, you can pray for their welfare. Like Stephen did. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Like Jesus himself did. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. See, God's children have a heart for the well-being of all people because they have a heart like their father's heart. Now, what's the result of these prayers for such people? For all, well, for such prayers for all people. Paul says that when, when you desire the well-being of all people without excluding any person or type of person from, from your prayers because of who they are, when you're just generous in your prayers for all people, then... That has a result, the second half of verse 2. That we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. See, when believers are not stingy, and they're not clicky, and they're not sectarian, then we can go about our lives among our neighbors and under our authorities in a calm and confident and godly way, seeking the good of everybody around us. And this promotes the progress of the gospel. We desire to give no offense to anyone because of our attitude. As far as it depends on us, we seek to maintain a good reputation above reproach in our community. And we adorn with our godliness the gospel by the way we live our lives. And then what do we do? We take all that goodwill and we leverage it for all it's worth Because we have to tell people about Jesus so that they can be saved. That's what can happen when we pray generously. We seek the salvation of all people as our Father would have us do. And what's on our Father's heart ought to be on what's on our heart. So let's now consider his heart for sinners. Verses 3 through 7. Read that with me. This by which he means this impartial prayer, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior 
who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So why do we pray for all people? Because God's salvation is for all people. And the first way we see that is we see God's desire for all people. Verse 4. God's desire is that all be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That, friends, is very good news. Because it means that his salvation is available for everyone. There's not a person here in this room that was not for. God's heart is overflowing in his affections and his love and his desire for the salvation of sinners. And he is actively, ceaselessly, tirelessly working for the salvation of sinners. I want you to see how Paul is just demolishing the exclusivism of the false teachers. See, they're limiting salvation. They're limiting salvation to their own kind, especially to Jews. But Paul just takes a sledgehammer to that notion. God desires all people to be saved. His heart is lavishly generous for all kinds of sinner, every kind of sinner, without distinction. There's not a single sinner that is in some category whether it be ethnicity or social class or nationality or rank or station in life or even who's committed some particular kind of sin. And because they're in that category, they're cut off from God's salvation in Jesus. It just, that's just not true. Now, we have to, we have to be just a little careful. Paul does not mean by this that every single sinner will be saved. He knows that's not going to happen. He talks about that in other passages. And he doesn't even mean that it's God's sovereign intention to save every single sinner. But he's not discussing election in 1 Timothy 2. Because that's not what's at issue in Ephesus. What is at issue? It's this twisted mentality that says, God's salvation is for me and my people but it's not for you and your people. Paul says, no way. No way. God so loved the world. So we have God's desire for all people. And then we have Jesus Christ, who's the one mediator, one go-between, who is provided for all people. Let's read verses 5 and 6 again. For there is one God... And there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only son. Jesus is available to everyone. Jew, Gentile. Slave, free. High, low, men, women, young, old. In him all the nations and families of the earth are blessed. 
And Paul takes the fight right to the, the false teacher's home court. He says, you want to be teachers of the law? Well, let's look at the law. In fact, let's look at the central creed given in the law. What's that? The Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. He alone made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He alone rules over the nations. There's one God. Which means that one God is God of everybody. There's not one on this planet who is not under the rule of and the protection of and the care of the Lord God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All other gods are fakes. All other gods are cheats. There's only one God who's given his son, Jesus Christ, and it's him that you have to reckon with. There's only one God. And this one God has provided exactly one way by which all the peoples on earth may come into a right relationship with him. See, friends, and I tell you what, heard this before, or maybe you've heard it a thousand times. Listen again. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are therefore estranged from God. All are under God's judgment. That means that a great chasm is fixed between you and God. He's on this side of the gap in all of his righteousness and holiness and purity. You are on the other side of the gap with all your unrighteousness and unholiness and impurity. Now how can you possibly get back to God? How can you possibly relate rightly to this God separated as you are by this unfathomable gulf? You might try and build yourself a bridge across the gap with your good works. That will fail. It will never reach. Your works are not really good, and even your best works can't make up for your sin. No teachings of another religion will allow you to get across. There's absolutely nothing you can do to get across. But... You can't do anything on this side. But God is not so powerless. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bridge the gap. Jesus is the mediator. He's the go-between. He can speak to God on your behalf. He can speak to you on God's behalf. He's fully and totally God, perfect in his holiness, and he's fully and totally man. So as a man, he can stand in your place before God. Jesus stands in the gap. He is the mediator. Suspended in between heaven and earth, between God and man, Jesus died on the cross for the sins of sinners just like you, just like me. He gave himself a ransom that is available for all and everyone who looks to his sacrifice as the payment for their sin will be saved. No exception. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, God has appointed Jesus to be the one Savior. And Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free, American and Pakistani and Chinese, Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. He is a ransom to all who will come to him. So we see that God's salvation is for all because God desires, his desire is for all people. And Jesus is the mediator provided for all people. And finally, God has appointed the preaching of the gospel for all people. Look at verse 7 again. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. See, God wants his salvation to be available in the world. But how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe on him whom they have not heard? And how how will they hear without a preacher? So he sends out preachers across the world so that everyone may have access to the gospel. And Paul is one of the first examples of that. Paul was specifically commissioned by the Lord Jesus to take the apostle to the Gentiles, outside the boundaries of ethnic Israel. Paul still offered the gospel to Jews as well, but his special charge was to preach to the Gentiles. He was supposed to go to those who were far off, those who had been strangers and aliens, and he was to tell them, God's salvation's for you too. It's for you too. Not just Jews, it's for you too. And that's, that's his last argument that he gives against these Ephesian false teachers. How can they say that salvation is for their small Jewish little group clique only? I mean, he'd heard Jesus speak to him for, from heaven, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That, that proves that salvation is for Gentiles as well as Jews. It's not just some little club. And even today, gospel preachers are going out into every corner of this world, making new initiatives into places where Jesus' name has never yet been heard. And then in, what about in areas like ours, which is like kind of burned over ground where Christianity once flourished but now it's believed by relatively few. Here also, there are preachers who stand week after week offering the free offer of the gospel to anyone who will listen, and people are responding. And new churches are being started as gospel outposts, like in like Emmanuel Church in Weymouth, Massachusetts, which has a bunch of non-Christians currently attending it, hearing the gospel. And you... Brothers and sisters in Christ, you're likewise sent out into your different communities with a job to tell people, listen, there's one man appointed to be the Savior for your sins, friend, and his name is Jesus Christ, and you can have him simply by turning from your sins and believing in his name. That is your job. That is my job. See, the gospel is not just for you and for your family. The gospel is for all those in Franklin County and Chittenden County and Lamoille County and whatever counties you New Yorkers are part of. We've got to go and we've got to tell people and we've got to pray. 
Pray for all people that they may be saved. Pray without any thought. Ah, the gospel's probably not for them. That's not true. Whoever came to your mind when I said that, it's not true. It's not true. The gospel is for all. God is a generous God. His salvation is for all people. So brothers and sisters, does your heart beat like this? And specifically, do your prayers reflect his heart? Now, I want to say a word to you who are sitting here today and are not yet believers in Jesus. And you're not Christians. Because this is such good news for you. Can you not see the heart of God for sinners like you? Will you not see the heart of God for sinners like you? I want you to go back one chapter. In the Blue Bible, it's the same page. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. This is how Paul was talking a little earlier. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Friend, you already have the one qualification you need in order to be saved. What's that one qualification? That you're a sinner. You already have that. You need nothing else. I don't care what kind of sinner you are. I don't care what category you put yourself in. Whether you're Jewish or Gentile. Whether you're more of a Pharisee or more of a tax collector. Whether you're respectable or whether you're a screw-up. Whether you're a pagan or whether you're a church kid. And... I don't care what type of sinner you are, what kind of label you have on yourself. Liar, sexually immoral, hateful, worldly, self-righteous, rebel, thief, fool, blasphemer, proud, drunkard. You think of the label that fits. It doesn't matter what category you're in. There's great hope for you today. Because it's God's desire that a sinner like you should be saved. And God has provided a mediator for sinners like you. So that they can be saved. And Jesus Christ has died for sinners like you so that you can be saved. And God has appointed preachers of the gospel. Right now it's me. He has appointed preachers of the gospel so that you might hear the gospel and believe and be saved. You are invited by God to come. To come to Christ. Listen to Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. 
Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that your soul may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him when he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he might have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. Friend, there's absolutely no reason in the world for you not to come to Jesus Christ. Do you have sins that need forgiving? Yes. Do you have any hope of getting rid of your sins on your own? No. Can you escape the wrath of God if you remain in your sins? No. Is there any Savior who has been raised up by God to save a sinner like you? Yes. What is his name? Jesus Christ, the God-man. Is the death that he died a payment sufficient to ransom you from your sins? Yes. Is his blood, which he shed on the cross, good enough to atone for your sins? Yes. Is Jesus willing that you should take him to be your Savior? Yes. I said, is he willing? Yes. Is there any other alternate mediator you can look to? No. Will God save you if you put your trust in this Savior that he has provided? Yes. Is God willing that sinners like you should believe in his Son and be saved? Yes. Are his arms wide open, ready to embrace any and every sinner that believes in his Son? Yes. Do you, therefore, have every right in the world to take Jesus as your Savior? Yes. Every right in the world. So, will you come to Jesus Christ and be saved? That I cannot answer. But know this, if you will not, it is not that he's unwilling to have you. It's that you're unwilling to have him. Friend, God's heart is given to the salvation of sinners. He bids you come and welcome to Jesus Christ. He commands you to come. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, those of you who have already placed your faith in him, let's take us a minute and sift our hearts and evaluate our hearts and see Does our heart match? Is it resonating with our Father's heart? Is it given in our heart's affections to work for the salvation of sinners? And following our text, let's use our patterns of prayer 
as the measuring stick. Here's some questions for us. Who do you pray for? I'm going to make a generalization, which might be vastly unfair, but I'm going to make an assumption that you're a little like me. And so we pray, in general, not inappropriately, according to our circles of responsibility. First circle. We pray for ourselves, and we pray for our families. Next circle out. We pray for our church family. Next circle out. We pray for friends and coworkers and fellow students and people that we're in contact with. And then it tends to peter out. Now, is, is that wrong to be praying for those people? Of course not. But is that praying for all men? Second question, who do you struggle to pray for? Who do, you, who do you find it difficult to because somehow, in some back corner of your mind, you would never say it, but you kind of, you consider them unsavable. Maybe it's specifically governing authorities. We already talked about that. Maybe a couple other categories I want us to think of. Maybe it's those who you perceive to be your enemies or a threat to your way of life. Maybe it's people whose political ideology is very different from your own and maybe, maybe you abhor everything that they stand for. Maybe it's enemies of your country. Nations and Groups like the Taliban that fight against the United States. Maybe it's those who harass and persecute believers through the world. Again, think Islamic State, ISIS, people and other groups throughout the world. What about those who have personally harmed you or those whom you love? Maybe those whom you just don't like. You you just don't like them. Do you find your enemies hard to pray for? Maybe it's people whose spiritual condition you believe somehow makes them unsuited to salvation. Maybe it's because they're of different religions. They're a practicing Jew who rejects Jesus as the Messiah. Maybe Muslims or Buddhists Hindus, those who are involved in cults like Jehovah's Witness or Latter-day Saints. Practitioners of New Age religion. And you think there's no way that God, or again, you wouldn't say it, but you think there's, there's no way they're going to they're gonna come, they're going to turn to Jesus. Maybe it's those who are enslaved to particular sins, perhaps sins that you find particularly distasteful those who proudly celebrate sexual sin, those who are immersed in criminality, immersed in addiction, those who hold on to a deep and entrenched bitterness. And maybe you think, 
It's this, this is hopeless. They won't turn. They won't turn. Why would I pray? Maybe it's just those who have refused the gospel for a really, really long time. Some of you have people you've been longing for their salvation for 50 years. And you think, if it hasn't happened yet, it's probably not going to happen. And you're praying, your praying loses its edge. And, and here's the kicker, I think. Maybe it's just anyone that you don't give a thought to. And I suspect for some of us, that's anyone outside your family. And your mindset, again, though you wouldn't say it, is as long as I'm saved and my kids are saved, I'll be content. And that, friends, that shows that our prayer lives can reveal an exclusive attitude. The gospel is for me and for mine. And that's an ugly attitude. That's an ugly attitude. It doesn't share God's generous, loving heart. So how can we cultivate a heart like God's heart? How can we fall on our faces and repent and say, God, this is who you are and this is what you're like. And I don't feel that I'm very much like that right now. How do we repent? Well, it's, we cultivate a heart like God's heart by remembering what kind of sinner we were, what category of sinner we were. And that's really the secret. It's how Paul kept his heart soft toward all people. Let's go back to that verse in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. We're back to that, aren't we? We're back to understanding that I was just as unsavable as anybody else. I was not a good candidate for salvation. I was not a good catch. I was dead in my trespasses and sins like every other sinner. I was, Titus 3, foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending my life in malice and envy, hateful, hating other people. And yet, and yet, God loved me. God desired me to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And because the Father loved me, he gave his Son for me. And Jesus, because he loved me, gave himself on the cross for my sinful, unworthy soul. And then, because God loved me, in time, he made sure that I would come under the hearing of the gospel so that I could hear the good news of Jesus' salvation and believe on him. So even though I'm the chief of sinners, as Paul would say, chief of sinners, God saved a wretch like me. And now, 
if he loved me so much and sacrificed so much to make sure his salvation was available to me, then how shall I not love and work for and pray for that person over there, a sinner just like me, that they also might be saved? Because God's salvation is for them too. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that your heart is for sinners that they might be saved. And there's many, many people in this room that you took out of the muck and mire of sin and you have saved and you have redeemed and you have made them holy. And there's many people here today that are still waiting, still testing the waters, or maybe not even doing that. But they've heard that Jesus Christ is a willing Savior, and that God is willing that they should have Him. And I pray that they would take Him, and that nothing would stand in their way, and that their own pride would be humbled, that they might take Jesus Christ. For he truly is the one mediator between God and man. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you, Lord, for this word. In Jesus' name, amen.